On June 18, 1972, a British European Airways Trident is doing a short trip from London to Brussels when something goes horribly wrong. What caused this flight to crash right after takeoff, making this the worst aviation accident in UK history? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. Welcome back. I feel like we say that every time. <laughs> yeah. In, in some capacity or variation, yeah. Yeah. Welcome to our new patron. Avelia. Avelia. Hey. So, it's an awesome name. Thank you. We That's will cool send out your stuff. You should have it by the time you hear this. Hopefully. If not, you are eligible to smack me. Or eligible to message us like other patrons have. <laughs> just say that's hey okay. uh i thought you were gonna send me stuff and then we'll go oh shit. okay sorry. but if i give them permission to smack me that's more mad of motivation for me to actually do it that's true <laughs> just like facebook message us like a a, a hand i would hope not okay other than that we have no august stories <laughs> Still. Zero. Yay. So we probably won't have August listener stories. Unless you are listening to this the day it comes out and you flutter inbox. Please and thank you. So there's that. It's supposed to be flight school and or learning stories because August is back to school month. For apparently not the entirety of our country. No, my dad was saying. Some people it's in September. My dad was saying that in Oregon it's entirely in September and that we're weird. We're too early. Whatever. Which is f- weird of him to call us weird, because he used to... Never mind. I know. But he never went to school here, so... That's true. Also, newsletter. If you'd like to get the newsletter, you can sign up for that on our website. You can yeah. always, by the way, unsubscribe to that if you don't want it anymore. <laughs> you can just yeah. be like, hey, can you take me off your email list? Thanks. And we will do that. And we'll, it's really easy. I'll just take you off the email list. I have one. Okay. This is going to be kind of dumb. But happy birthday to Jinx, who turns six today. My He's cat. He's so old. <laughs> I mean, compared to, like, when you got him. When I got him, he was, like, three days old. Yeah. Also, you may hear some crunch crunching. The yeah. dog. That's the dog chewing on his bone. We have given him some sedatives. He's trapped up here with us, and then he's got a bone to distract him. So hopefully this time, he won't be too bad. We gave him some good old tryptophan, which is the stuff that's in Turkey, so that makes you pass out. After you eat your big Thanksgiving meal. Yeah. You guys don't hear a lot of it because it's edited out, but he's been very naughty when he's up here with us. So we're trying to... Mitigate. Mitigate. Check out the merch tab on our website. It's cool stuff on there. I'm supposed to be adding stuff that I haven't because guess what? Last week <laughs> sucked. Yeah, because you started school. Yeah. So it For the year. was a lot. So this week will be when I add all of it to this I story. found a new phrase that I quite enjoy. It's I was actually listening to And That's Why We Drink, just pitching them right now. Um, they Episode 208 of their podcast covers Japan Airlines Flight 1628, which has a UFO sighting. Hmm. Ooh. And at one point, air traffic control says, you're violating my airspace. And I'm like, you're violating my airspace. <laughs> so that's going to be a shirt. Hopefully. Eventually. It's like you're violating my personal bubble, but it's my airspace. Aviation jokes. Yay! Okay. Ah, Okay. So, what are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering British European Airways Flight 548. Thank you. 
to Chris and Helen. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> for recommending this episode. We're a mess. It's fine. Yeah. Thanks. So this one's going to be a fun one, actually. There's there's a lot to this. The, and, the flight sequence in the report was fairly short. Eh, so yeah. But you get a lot of me. And I have to, like, pull on my uh, slight medical knowledge today. And we get to talk about an airplane we haven't talked about before. So this incident, or this accident, occurred on June 18th of 1972. So it's an oldie accident. Fairly. Fairly old. It is pre-CRM. Yes. This is a Hawker Sidley Trident 1C with the tail number Golf-Alpha Romeo Papa India. They just named their airplanes, basically. If they didn't already have names, they would name them the last two letters of the... the uh, tail number so this plane is papa india this plane is known as papa india mm. but we got to talk about this uh trident which was actually a wholly british built very actually very good airplane it is a trijet with all three engines mounted at the rear of the airplane much like the 727 which is what pushed it out of competition in its later years yeah it was not used by a ton of airlines it never saw any western use as in, it never made it over the Atlantic. But it was very common in the UK and in the Middle East and in a lot of Europe. Wasn't the L-1011 also a Trijet? Yes, the L-1011 okay. was also a Trijet. It's the Tristar. It is known as the Tristar, yep. But that one had two wing-mounted and one tail-mounted? Correct. See, I remember stuff. Yep. No, I don't. <laughs> so this airplane's a mid-sized, smaller mid-sized airplane. So not an enormous capacity, but... It's good for short to medium range, and as a matter of fact, this flight was from London Heathrow Airport to Brussels in Belgium. Oh, yeah. It is a 45-minute yeah, flight. Yeah, it's a short flight. But at the time that the Trident came about, it was competing with the turboprops and piston airplanes of the time, so it was a much faster alternative. It was nicer, generally more luxurious. I believe somebody in the Air Disasters episode called it the, it, like, flying a sports car. Oh, yes. Or a hot rod versus, you know. Normal cars. Yeah. <laughs> so. Normal airplanes. It's, uh, it's a nice airplane, and actually it was, it was a pretty good airplane. It was luxurious for the time. Yes. The captain for the flight was Stanley Key. He was 51 years old. He had 15,000 hours total, of which 4,000 hours were on the Trident. He was in the, what we will call, P1 position. Or Pilot 1. Pilot 1. This is going to get very confusing. I was so confused for the longest time trying to figure this out. Because this isn't at all what you would think. Oh, good. One of the second officers... <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> who was technically acting as the quote-unquote flight engineer in this case even though that's not officially the position. Simon Ticehurst, he was 24 years old, so he was young. Wow, he was really young. He was younger than us. Oh, just wait. He had 1,400 hours total, of which 750 hours were on the Trident, so he... I mean, considering was... how young he was, yeah, it's not That's bad. pretty good. Yeah. yeah not too um, bad. So Not he... the most experienced, youngest person we've talked about. I but... know. Correct. So he is the second officer... Sitting in P3 or pilot 3 position. So he's, he's behind the, the 
control console, but they also tried to formulate the design of the Trident so that he it's not like other planes where he had his old, whole other station looking sideways from the direction of the cockpit. Does that make sense? Yes. He's looking forward with the rest of the crew. Oh, that's kind of weird. It yeah, is so weird. He's looking forward and he's at the base of the pedestal where the throttle is and everything. He also has somewhat of a side uh, flight engineer panel. But they tried to minimize how much that position is looking at the side panel. Yeah. They tried to make it such that that flight crew member would be looking forward as much as possible. Okay. Yeah. Dude, I don't know. So, and obviously this is before the 1,500-hour requirement. Because we had 1,400, of which 750 were on the Trident. So, And to go even further than that, the other second officer, who was in the first officer position... Or in the right seat. Or right P2, seat, second pilot. Yes. Is... Jeremy Keeley, he was 22 years old, so even younger. He's a baby. He, he had 29 hours on the Trident at the time. Why is he in the first officer's position? On top of that, I have no idea what hours, <laughs> how many total hours he had. I have like but kind of an estimation I, later. Well, and I have a rough idea because what I could find is that the airline would hire people at 250 hours. That's pretty much what I have. So he has at least 250 hours. Plus 29. So he has next to no time. 250 hours, maybe. Uh, I say again, why is he in the first officer position? This well, is he just was allowed to. Yep, he was certified. He could be there. And I will talk about this much later. Yes, all of this is very confusing. All of this is very not standard practice now. So, <laughs> yeah. there, so there's no first officer. Correct. Yes. There's a captain and two second officers. First officer yes. is a separate title, and no one on this aircraft was a first officer. Okay. Correct. That's a little weird. And addition, I don't talk about this, but normally in this role, second officers get trained both as P2 and P3. So they usually alternate. One will do P2 on the way there, and then we'll do P3 on the way back. Given circumstances at this time that I will talk about later, this is not in effect right now. Oh, okay. So, so they weren't switching positions. So Keeley, the 22-year-old, is considered a P2-only second officer. Okay. Weird, but that's what's happening. It's kind of weird to have two very young people. Yep. In the cockpit uh-huh. with a captain. Like, mm-hmm. to me, that just seems like a not-so-great move. We yeah. will talk about <laughs> that in... <laughs> we will talk about that in depth in a little while. Great. Because that seems like very, very bad planning on BEA's part. Like, oh, I don't like it. I really don't like it. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that. It's not just BEA. It's kind of a industry standard at this point. At least in the UK. All right. This crew had been on standby duty before the flight, but they had been called on to duty for this flight because the crew that were supposed to fly this airplane were delayed on a separate flight, so they weren't going to be there. Oh. So this crew took over in order to make this flight happen. Which sucks, because the captain had put in his schedule so that he would have Sundays off. And instead... He got called in on a Sunday. The captain was to be the pilot flying. For this flight. And the other two were to be the (laughs) pilots monitoring, technically. Sort of. Well, and the the P2 position was in charge of, like, flaps and other kinds of settings like that. Yes. And radio calls. Yes. So normal, kind of normal, pilot monitoring. Kind of. 
Then there was a jump seat behind the captain, which was occupied by another captain that was traveling with a crew over to Brussels for repositioning to grab another airplane. This is still normal practice, actually. It's just called deadheading. So, so having another captain on board in the jump seat? But he's just traveling. He's not on duty. Yeah. He's just there. He's yes. just, but you can, you can be in the jump seat when yes. you're traveling. Flight attendants can do this off-duty. Yep. Can some, maintenance personnel? Some mechanics can do it as well if there's no seats available, but they need them on duty somewhere else. So say an airplane breaks down in a smaller town where they don't have any maintenance facilities, but they need an airplane, they need a, a mechanic there stat. They, and, and there's no space on the flight, they'll stick them in the jump seat. Had your dad ever deadheaded? No, I don't think he has. Not okay. in the not in the jump seat. Just curious. The flight had 109 passengers and 9 crew. Now, this is a little bit loaded because 3 of those crew are the 3 crew that are traveling, that are deadheading. Oh, okay. Repositioning. So, that's what was officially reported, but that's not necessarily true. There's technically 112 passengers and six crew. Okay. Three cabin crew, three flight crew. But this was a full flight. The passengers consisted of 29 Americans, 29 Belgians, 28 Britons, 12 Irish, four South Africans, three Canadians, and then there was also a single passenger from six other countries around the world. Oh, wow. So this, this was a very diverse flight, which... If you know anything about Brussels, it's actually very common. Brussels is a very uh, international city. I heard an analogy once that the United States, although it is called a melting pot, is more of a mosaic. Yes. Because each culture still has its identity in entire neighborhoods. Yes. Whereas Belgium is more of an actual melting pot, yeah. where it's like individual city blocks. Yeah, city blocks. Cultures, are, individual cultures. Yep, devoted to different places. Anyways... Startup clearance was given at 3.39 p.m. for a scheduled departure of 3.45 p.m. Pushback was not requested until 4 p.m., however. They were delayed due to a load readjustment, which we'll talk about here in a second. And then the taxi clearance was given at 4.03 p.m. Why were they delayed? Well, just before the do door was closed, the flight crew was asked to accommodate those three additional crew members oh. that were deadheading. For repositioning. The aircraft, however, was nearly at max gross takeoff weight before those three crew members were added. And so with the three crew members added, they were going to be overweight. Oh. Therefore, they decided to remove some mail and some freight to accommodate these three passengers. This caused the delay. Even after this, the airplane was still technically 24 kilograms overweight. But from the time that the engines were started to the time that they actually would take off... They would burn more than enough fuel to be within the max takeoff weight. So this airplane was heavy. Hmm. At 4.06 p.m., the flight reported as being ready for takeoff to the air traffic controller, and they were subsequently given clearance for takeoff on runway 28 right. Now, I'm confused, because they say that, and then they kind of repeated themselves in the report that they were cleared for takeoff, but it was 42 seconds later, which I don't wholly understand why. But in any case, they said there was a delay of 42 seconds to the clearance to takeoff, at which time the flight was cleared at 4.08 p.m. and 24 seconds, with the brakes releasing six seconds later. Now, that's an important moment. The brakes release is what we will refer to from here on out. I'm going to read something specifically from the report to explain why that is. Oh, we're reading a lot of quotes tonight. Yes. Today? Whenever you're listening. Whatever. So they have a pretty good explanation, and I didn't really want to change it because if I did, it was just going to 
complicate it more than it already is. This is read directly from the report. This will explain why that break release is important and why we're referring to that moment forward, backward in time. The standard BEA practice for this particular flight involved a takeoff with 20 degrees of flaps, leading edge droop extended, which the droops are the slats, what we refer to as slats these days. Same thing. And the engine thrust at settings below full power. After takeoff speed should be increased to the initial climb speed, which is VNA, which is takeoff safety speed, V2, plus 25 knots. So VNA is the noise abatement. Noise abatement. The scheduled value of VNA for the flight was 177 knots indicated airspeed. At 90 seconds from brakes off, flaps are to be selected fully up and the engine thrust reduced to the noise abatement settings. At 3,000 feet, climb power is to be set, and then as the aircraft accelerates and reaches 225 knots, the leading edge is retracted, and the en route climb established. So this is specifically why we're referring to the brake release as an important moment, because they have 90 seconds from the times the, the brakes are released to get to 177 knots. And then reduce power. Then reduce power and retract the flaps to be within the noise abatement requirements. And Heathrow actually positioned people at the place that they should be 90 seconds later to have a decibel reading to listen to this airplane and make sure that it is quiet right at that moment. Yeah. and then That's it would how go- crazy this is. And it would go on your record as a pilot if yep. you didn't meet it. If they passed over that person and it was just a titch too loud, it went on your record and they would reprimand you. Okay, listen. <laughs> if you live near an airport, it's gonna be loud. Yep. Noise abatement's still very much a very real thing, though, and it's still very much an enormous debate and problem in aviation. I understand the import- importance of noise abatement, because you don't want to make it so people who live relatively near to the airport are constantly getting disturbed by the noise. Okay, I get it. But but you also to live... To mark someone's permanent record, it's like in school. Like, it's going to go on your permanent record. Right. You know? And that, that just gives pilots more pressure, and that's not great. Right. Now, specifically, this was targeted at the Trident because it's such a loud airplane in particular. It was a nice airplane, but it was loud. At the time that the brakes were released, the first officer would start the airplane's stopwatch for the 90-second noise abatement critical period. The aircraft rotated 42 seconds in, so nearly half of the time has already gone by by the time they rotate. Well, they're heavy, so... Yes. They would lift off of the runway two seconds later at 145 knots. 63 seconds in, the autopilot was engaged and the airplane was 355 feet above ground level, moving 170 knots. 74 seconds in, the airplane began a 20-degree bank to the left for a left turn on this departure. The airplane was almost immediately in turbulent conditions as it climbed away from Lennon Heathrow. The weather was not amazing. There was broken clouds at 600 feet, 1,000 feet overcast. Weather was not great. There was rain, turbulence, all that. 83 seconds in, the captain reported to the air traffic controller, quote, climbing is cleared, end quote. The air traffic controller then instructed them to contact London Center on frequency 128.4, and they did so. So now they're on a different frequency, talking to the... London Center, not the air traffic controller, not the tower controller. 93 seconds in, the crew initiated the noise abatement procedures. At that time, the first officer would bring the flaps up and reduce the power to a predetermined setting to make the airplane quiet. 100 seconds since releasing the brakes, 
The captain informed the air traffic controller that they were passing 1,500 feet. 103 seconds, so three seconds later, the air traffic controller cleared the flight to climb to 6,000 feet and to squawk 6615 on their transponder. The captain acknowledged these instructions. 114 seconds in, the airplane was at 1,772 feet, when suddenly the airplane began to stall. Two seconds later, the stick pusher activated, which disengaged the autopilot, and the nose pitched over. The stick shaker and the stick pusher briefly stopped as the airplane seemed to recover. However, the nose pitched up again immediately, and the stick shaker activated once more at 124 seconds since the brake release. This occurred once more with the stick shaker and stick pusher activating at 127 seconds after the brake release. The aircraft pitched up rapidly, all of a sudden, causing it to quickly lose airspeed and altitude. By this time, the airplane was far too low to recover. The aircraft passed low over a highway, the A-30, specifically for those that live there, and a set of power lines, narrowly missing both, before slamming into an open field area between the highway and a busy inhabited area. Very, very narrow area they slammed, actually. The air traffic controller did not notice the airplane drop off the radar. That's a problem. As they were busy at the time. Two brothers, 9 and 13 years old, were walking nearby when they witnessed the airplane come down out of the clouds and drop below the trees where it impacted. A nearby motorist that also witnessed the crash drove to a house and called the airport to report the accident immediately. Emergency services were not made aware of the accident for nearly 15 minutes. Nobody had a clue. Well, for 15 minutes. The one person who would know for sure would be the ATC controller, and, and they weren't paying notice. attention, so they didn't notice that they dropped off radar. Yep. So the it could not have been, the search and rescue could not have been done in a timely fashion, because the one person who really knows what happened and, wasn't paying attention. And also, since this was before cell phones, like, you know, these days, if this happened... A dozen people would be calling immediately. Yeah, but like saying, those two boys. Just went down. Yeah, those two boys probably had to run somewhere, right, yes. to get access to a phone to call. Yep, the motorist the... drove to a house. The motorist that saw it drove to a house, called the airport, and then the airport would report it to emergency services. But still, 15 minutes it took from the moment of impact till emergency services were aware. And this is in a busy part of London. The first person on the scene was a nurse who lived nearby that heard the crash and rushed to help. Leaving her, like, newborn infant yeah. with neighbors. Yes. Yep. Dang. When she arrived, she came across a scene of devastation. The airplane had broken apart into many pieces, disintegrating on impact. The airplane had not burst into flames, however, on the impact, but some fires began to start as she came across bodies strewn throughout the wreckage. She found a man alive and used a piece of wreckage to try to splint some of his injuries. So literally, she took a piece of the airplane and used that to, like, splint his leg. I mean, she's being resourceful. Yes. Do, do Work with what you got, honestly. Yep. Yes. Rescuers soon arrived and rushed the man to the hospital, but he unfortunately passed soon after from his injuries. He was not conscious at any point after the accident. Oh, so no. So he didn't even know. He didn't make it. A young girl was also found alive but unconscious by rescuers, but she passed away at the accident site before they could get her to safety. Oh, no other survivors were found, meaning that all 118 people on board perished in the accident, making it the worst aviation accident in UK history, which still stands today, by the way. 
It is not the worst aviation disaster in UK history, however. No. Accident is the operative word, and we will be covering the worst aviation disaster in UK history later this year. Yep. At some point. Quick question. Mm -hmm. And maybe you don't know the answer to this, but I want to ask it. Would they have been in brace positions? I'm not sure they had time. I don't... I'm not even sure if they had, like, actual... I know they had brace positions, but I don't know if the crew would have known, like, the the cabin crew would have known to have people get in them. An important thing is that the airplane struck the ground 150 seconds, seconds after the brakes were released. 150 seconds. That's not very long. It's Just over two than, minutes. Yeah. Just over two minutes. And the time that it was actually airborne was not long at all. Less than two minutes. Yeah. Dude. So they didn't have much time to react to this at all. From the time that the stick shaker and the stick pusher activated to the time they impacted was, let me see here, was about 35 seconds. This is giving me, nation. is it Nation Air or National Air? Nation Air vibes? I forget which is which. Which, what are you? The one, one in Afghanistan? The cargo one. Yeah. That's National. National. Yeah, it's giving me National vibes. It's giving me like... They really screwed up on the weight and balance of the airplane vibes. So actually, that doesn't get mentioned at all in here. Not even as like a rabbit hole they went down. Really? I'm, I'm assuming yeah. they went down that rabbit hole. They just didn't talk about it in the report. Yeah. So oh, all things considered. That would be that, a bit like my first thing. Like That did not happen. I know. Listen. All things considered, <laughs> but that wasn't it. Although we do have to say this report. Yeah. So that being said, if you guys ever do want to see a video of a stall in progress, that crashes on video mm-hmm. yeah the national. national air uh i think it's flight 102 it was it um leaving off out of afghanistan and you watch it stall you can look on our website at the blog post it's on the blog post i don't remember what episode it is off the top of my head i apologize give me two seconds i can figure it out for you <laughs> oh wait i can figure it out probably it's- episode 32 <laughs> episode 32 so it's on the blog post for episode 32 you can also look up national air or weight and balance, or... Afghanistan plane crash will probably pull it up. Yeah. So. Okay. This investigation was performed by the UK's Accidents Investigation Branch, or AIB, which was the predecessor of today's AAIB. Yep. Investigators arrived on site within hours, and amidst the wreckage, they were able to find the plane's two flight data recorders one of which was the quick access cassette recorder, which is amazing that they found it because it did not have crash or impact protection. Oh, no. But this aircraft was not equipped with, nor was it required to be equipped with, a cockpit voice recorder. Wah, wah. Yep. So, that's tragic. I would also like to mention a couple of things about this report, should you ever choose to read it. This report does have first person in it, which I still find bizarre for an official government report. Yes. Document, whatever. Additionally, it was submitted to the Secretary of State for Trade and Industry, attached to a letter once again ending in, I have the honor to be your obedient servant, Jeffrey Land. (laughs) (laughs) I have to throw in Hamilton references where I can. Give me a break. There were some details that the investigators were able to garner fairly quickly from the wreckage alone. Many crashes that we cover have a long trail of debris. debris spread over miles. This was not the case here. Concentrated. Although the tail was separated from the rest of the wreckage, it was all found fairly close together, and the tail was found only 50 yards from where it initially impacted the ground. 
we have a picture of some of the wreckage on our website. And in that same image, you'll see power lines going through the image, such that the plane would have had to pass over them on its way to the ground, but they weren't damaged. In other words, the plane fell at a very steep angle, much closer to vertical than horizontal. So normally an airplane, you know, you have the ground, power lines are here. Normally an airplane would go through the through power them, lines to end up where they are. But they were so high. But they were coming it, down what? so steep that it just came down flat, passed by the power lines entirely. And they were able to garner that it impacted pitch up. What is that indicative of, Miranda? Stalling. Good job. Correct. I was going to ask. I'm like, they're like nose up, right? Like yeah. he yep. landed like tail first, right? Yep. So, Giving you Colgan air vibes? Uh, <laughs> wow. I, I talk about it multiple <laughs> times in this episode for different reasons. Okay. <laughs> so let's explain a stall for any new listeners we might have here. The unique cross-section shape of an airplane wing is called an airfoil, and its shape makes it so that when air is passing over and below the wing, the pressure is higher below the wing and lower above, creating lift. A stall is what happens when there isn't enough air flowing over and under the wing to create enough lift to, well, lift the airplane. Wow. Yeah. Sorry, I don't know if I've ever mentioned that it's because of the shape of the wing that it does that. Oh, we talked about that in episode four. Okay. I specifically remember that because okay, there's diagrams on the episode four blog page about it. There you go. Episode four is crucial to this episode. Fun fact. Even though it happened decades later. And by the way, that's Colgan Air. If you didn't know. I will bring it up yep. multiple times. If you don't know. Now, now you, you know. know. Look at us go. <laughs> <laughs> well, what reasons do we know cause a stall? The first culprit would be any kind of engine failure, which would have slowed the plane down to a dangerously low airspeed, but the flight data recorder data reflected fully operating engines all the way up until impact. So there goes that. Given the weather and reported turbulence in the area, maybe that was to blame for a stall. In episodes 38 through 41, we discussed how sudden downdrafts and updrafts can cause a stall that is incredibly difficult to get out of. But when looking at official weather reports, investigators found that there weren't any reports of low-level wind shear or any other similar culprits. So investigators decided to take a look at the data from the flight data recorder again, this time looking for airspeed. Was the crew flying too slow? The answer is... sort of. Does this have to do with the noise abatement? Mm, no. Okay. Not, not entirely. So they were flying a little bit slower than they should have. The noise abatement climb speed was 177 knots, and they were around 7 to 9 knots slower than that. That no wouldn't really cause a stall, would it? Nope. Not normally. It's That's like knots. It's like dramatic drop in. Yeah. So this would not have caused the plane to stall if configured properly. Oh, no. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> wait, <laughs> now you're going to say, was the airplane configured properly? And the answer is no, <laughs> isn't well, it? <laughs> to be fair, at takeoff, it was. <laughs> I was hoping she would jump on that. <laughs> she did. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. And, oh, actually, that refers to another episode. Refer to episode 59 for Northwest Flight 255, which was configured improperly so the entire flight the entire flight which didn't really fly whatever <laughs> yeah so investigators reconstructed the lift devices on the wings and their control systems to determine if something went awry there 
This plane was equipped with flaps, which extend from the back or the trailing edge of the wing, as well as droops, or what we normally call slats, that extend from the front of the wing. Miranda and really likes the word droop. Yes. Droop snoot. And, and in normal airplanes these days, these are controlled with the same lever. So the first couple of notches would usually drop the slats and a couple of degrees of flaps. But then from there on out would just drop the flaps and the slats would be fully extended. In this case, the droops, or the slats, have a separate lever and are controlled separately. Uh-oh. You did watch this episode, by the way. Oh, I yeah, don't remember Yeah, because it was definitely it. already watched. The whole first half of the season was already watched. <laughs> That's how we knew. So, these two devices increase the surface area of the wing during slower speeds, like takeoff and landing, which allows the plane to maintain lift at these lower speeds. If something went wrong with these surfaces, the plane would have lost lift and immediately would have stalled. At this point in the flight, it would have been appropriate for the flaps to have already been retracted, so investigators weren't too worried about that. However, when they found the control lever for the droops, they found that the lever was set to retracted, which is very concerning. But maybe the lever was shifted during impact, or like, so during wreckage recovery. The flaps weren't supposed to be retracted, but the slats weren't either? Like, they were supposed to no, be the out? Flaps, the flaps were supposed to be retracted. Right, when but they the got flaps to weren't? Correct. Okay. The slats that are droops. Yes, the droops. The droops. Not the droops, Newt, just the droops. The droops. The droops. So, was the lever shifted during impact or during wreckage recovery? Hopefully? Nope. When the cable system was reassembled, the lengths matched a setting of retracted droops at a point during flight when they should not have been retracted. Uh-oh. So that's bad. SpaghettiOs! This also matched the flight data recorder data, which showed that the droops were retracted, which oh. definitely would have led to what investigators called a change of configuration stall. Though that is not a technical term, they just kind of made it up along the way. Yeah. I mean, this would only happen on an airplane that had this problem. Like, yeah. having the slats and flaps be two different changed. levers. Yeah. Or, well, or just changed during flight and initiating yeah, and a it, stall. and causing a stall. Yeah. It's, it's a variation of an aerodynamic stall. So... On this particular aircraft, retraction of flaps doesn't have a huge effect on stalling incidents at this phase of flight, but retraction of the droops was a, quote, particularly powerful method of propelling the airplane quickly into a stalling regime, end quote. Furthermore, yeah, furthermore, the droops were retracted at a speed of 60 knots-ish below the safe speed to retract them, and while in a banked turn, which was regarded as unsafe. So something definitely went wrong in the cockpit. Oh no, this is where the second officers come in, huh? Just you wait. Because <laughs> not yet. So how would something have gone wrong? It was known early on in the history of the Trident that there was an inclination to confuse the flap and droop lovers. Oh no. Are they not like clearly marked? Like there's there, not like a flaps for one and a droops for the other? There, like, there is. But... And they have different shaped handles despite what the Air Disasters episode says, by the way. Yes, because normally in airplanes, like for example on... A when you're when we're talking in general aviation on a complex airplane which will have a throttle lever a mixture lever and a constant speed prop lever so it's a changes the pitch of the prop all three of these levers one have different colors and two have different shapes so that when you reach down and you're feeling for them in the dark or something of that nature you can tell which one you have in your hand so same thing here they're different they're different that doesn't mean that they don't get confused though because yeah. Humans are dumb in general. This happens. So it was necessary to implement something to prevent such a misselection. 
Hawker Sidley designed a modification to prevent such a mistake, and BEA asked for it to be extended such that it prevented selecting the droops up instead of flaps when flaps were intended, and it was implemented on this aircraft where the droops couldn't be raised if the flaps were extended past 7 degrees. This protection was not applicable in this case. Because because the flaps were also retracted. Oh no. No other protection was put in place because normally you retract the droops quickly after retracting the flaps. I say normally because this climb out procedure is not normal. The noise abatement power cutback requires a period of around 100 seconds between flap retraction and droop retraction. The AIB did not blame Hawker Sidley for this, as they understand there's only so much you can do to prevent pilot error without inhibiting functionality of the controls. Well, this just wouldn't happen anymore because they're the same lever. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. These days, I mean, yes. Yeah. So it just we, you just go around that problem yep. when you have more just one lever doing both things. Yeah, yep, that's yep, the yep, big yep, thing. Yep, yep. So how do you determine who retracted the droops when you don't have a cockpit voice recorder? Whose job was it? Multiple people. It could have... So Excuse me? <laughs> what do you mean multiple people? <laughs> Wait, what? This was before CRM. Oh, no, 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 no. It... So I don't talk about this actually too, too much, but either second officer would have been correct in having it be their responsibility to control these surfaces. It could have been either of them. It also could have been the captain. It could have been uh, anybody. So uh... we come back to the question... Who done it? Investigators uh. began to examine each individual crew member. But before we truly get into that, we have to set the scene. At the time <laughs> <laughs> At the time of the accident, there was a long-standing dispute between the airline and the British Airline Pilots Association regarding pay and work conditions, and many pilots were on the verge of going on strike. But not all pilots felt this way either, and it was a heated and contentious topic between pilots. Very odd. So it wasn't a huge surprise when investigators found that the backseat second officer's table had offensive graffiti all over it with derogatory comments about both Captain Key as well as members of BEA's management staff. A handwriting analysis was unable to determine which of the people in the cockpit wrote most of the notes on the table, though. All that they were able to determine from the graffiti was that Captain Key was not in favor of the strike, but second officer Tice Hurst was, as at least one comment on the table was most likely his handwriting. In fact, an interview with first officer Spain, who had flown on this plane with Captain Key 12 days earlier, showed that the writing on the table was present even then, and he hid the table from Captain Key when he almost saw all the scribbles on the table. Furthermore, more derogatory graffiti was found on other planes in the aircraft's fleet. Are we five? Yeah. That's pretty much how investigators took this. Come on. Yep. Seriously? Yeah. You're adults. I mean, we have 22 and 24-year-olds, so <laughs> take that as you will. Right? Some. I mean, we are now 25, 20, almost 26. And in the U.S., to have an ATP rating and fly for an airline, you have to be... You have, to have, you have to have that 1,500 hours, but you also have to be 23 for most airlines. It's just one of those where it's like you can consider us children if you want, depending on your age. But by that point, I would think we you're not be past- petty enough yeah. to write it on a table for everyone to see. Yeah. So this is another opportunity I would like to take to correct sort of the Air Disasters episode. They made it seem like all of these comments were from that flight. And they weren't. They weren't. Well, no, if it was on a previous flight yeah. 12 days earlier. Mm-hmm. And it was on other planes in the fleet, which they also didn't mention. 
So, we're going well here. Yeah. While interviewing other BEA pilots regarding these scribbles, investigators became aware of an incident. An hour and a half before the departure of the accident flight, Captain Key and a number of pilots were in the crew room. Captain Key, despite what the Air Disasters episode says, again, had been enlisting support from his fellow senior captains against the impending strike, and First Officer Flavel, or Flavel, I'm going with Flavel, of the opposing faction asked how his efforts were going. This apparently provoked an outburst from Captain Key, who told Flavel that the matter was just as confidential as the Pilots Association ballot. One eyewitness described the outburst as the most violent argument he had ever heard. Though argument is perhaps the wrong word because it was more of Key just going off on Flavel, and Flavel kind of just stood there and took it. Although Captain Key was very angry, his rage seemed to subside, and he took Flavel by the arm and apologized and resumed seemingly normally. Well, at least he apologized. Which they also didn't depict in the Air Disasters episode. No, they didn't. So. I kind of remember something about having an argument. Okay. I remember some, a little bit about this, but I don't remember enough to remember what actually happened. That's okay. That's good. So. Oh, and that second pilot, the guy in the right seat, the 22-year-old Keeley, saw the whole thing happen. Oh, yep. gosh. So that's a situation that the crew has on their minds as they sit in the cockpit. That's a little. That's stressful. Yeah. That's the kind of pressure that... Doesn't belong in the cockpit. Really, no. This yeah. is where we start getting into... I mean, I, I realize this is before crew resource management, right? But not being intimidated by other pilots because they are, one, yeah. more experienced than you, and two, because you just saw them yell at someone else for, you know, something that you believe or whatever. Right. Spoiler alert, this was determined as a factor. Yep. So let's dig into the crew members individually. Autopsies were done on all four people in the cockpit, including the deadheading captain. And Captain Key's autopsy revealed some interesting results. No, no drugs or alcohol were found in his system or anyone else's for that matter, and thank God for that. But there was something abnormal found. Despite his healthy medical record, Captain Key had a heart condition. Three of his coronary arteries showed severe atherosclerosis, and the condition had been developing for 30 years or more. The diameter of these arteries had been reduced by 50 to 70%. Oh, no. Yeah, that's bad. It's really, really bad. Furthermore, and forgive the medical terminology, there had been, quote, an area of localized calcification, fibrin deposition, and aggregation of foamy phagocytes, end quote. Bringing that back to Earth for the rest of us to understand, he previously had an unrecognized heart attack, and it was declared possible that it may have been symptomless, otherwise known as a silent heart attack. Yikes. Well, it would be when you have 50% of your arteries blocked. Yeah. Now, what was of more concern was what was discovered next to this area of thickened artery. There was a tear in the lining of the artery, and the section of partially detached arterial lining was lying in the artery, further blocking blood flow. But still, there was enough blood flow to not have immediate symptoms. How did this happen? Quote, as the thickening of the arterial lining takes place, so small blood vessels form in the new tissue, and these are not robust. Should there be any sharp rise in the pressure of blood passing through these vessels, they would be apt to rupture, and the resulting hemorrhage in its turn could be creating its own pressure, forcing part of the arterial wall to separate. 
It is possible for the pathologist to tell from the color and composition of that blood that bleeding had started not more than two hours before death and not less than about a minute, end quote. So it didn't happen at impact. What would have caused a spike in blood pressure less than two hours before Having the flight? Having the argument with yeah. someone else. Yes. yes. Well, yep. before we go with that obvious option, there are actually a whole slew of things that stressed out the captain, probably. He wasn't supposed to work on Sundays and got called in anyway. I'd be pissed. Yeah, I don't like that either. If he had seen the graffiti by chance, that could have pissed him off. The unexpected and irritating delay before pushback could have done it too. But the one incident that stands out was the altercation in the crew room. What would this event have meant in terms of the captain's ability to fly? Well, a bunch of cardiologists argued about this. Fervently. One American cardiologist said that he would have probably collapsed and become unconscious due to the arrhythmia that would have developed and caused the heart to stop. A different cardiologist from, quote, this side of the Atlantic, end oh, quote. Oh, my God. Are we five? <laughs> it said that in the report. Yes. Oh, my God. The answer is yes. He did not disagree with this assessment, but he and others considered it impossible to say with any certainty what the effect might be. It could have been anything from a slight pain like indigestion to death, as the American cardiologist stated. Investigators sided with the not-American doctors because the blood flow wasn't fully blocked, so there almost certainly wouldn't have been a gross arrhythmia. The captain was probably uncomfortable with increasing pain, and no one probably noticed. At least according to the report. The Air Disasters episode revealed a little more on this front than the report actually did. When reviewing the air traffic control recording, investigators noticed something odd. When communicating with ATC, you're supposed to respond with repeating the instructions or clearance as well as your call sign. The captain wasn't doing that. In fact, his transmissions were so short that they did not meet aviation standards. At least in the way that air disasters depicted, he was responding with things like Roger or 548 instead of repeating instructions as given. This may have been an indicator to the pain he was feeling, possible shortness of breath, and limited focus. The reduced blood flow could have reduced oxygen to his brain, affecting alertness and ability to reason. Yeah. So, heart condition could have played a factor. Now, I know that there's a question that many of you are probably asking. I'm actually surprised Miranda hasn't asked this, because I wrote in a little thing for whenever she does ask it. Why was this 30-something-year-old condition never detected? Well, okay, if there's no, so me being a person who has a family member with a heart condition, okay, it can go a long time without it affecting you, That's and if it, if it doesn't affect you in any real way, you don't feel any discomfort, you don't, if he never felt the heart attack happen, and he thought he was healthy, and a normal physical turned out fine, he probably thought he was fine. The heart is one of those things where unless you actually go in and look at it or get like an echocardiogram for whatever reason. And the only reason you would do that is if a doctor was like, you need to get an echocardiogram. So now pilots are screaming because they've all had medicals done before. You get an ECG or an echocardiogram during your medical evaluation. Did that happen back then, though? Yes. So then I don't know would be the answer to that. This type of electrocardiogram, or ECG, performed during his medical exams would have usually revealed a myocardial infarction, but rarely, if ever, an arterial atheroma. Oh, so yeah, it did 
just wasn't detected. It may have been detected using an arteriogram, but the dangers of that procedure are too great to allow for its use in routine medical examination. So, again, if if the echo car like the echo came out fine and then there was no other discomfort or anything, like there's no reason for him to get it checked out. So, now kind of at this point, I didn't write anything about this, but I did read through it. This is more of the spat between the American cardiologist and everyone on the other side of the Atlantic, as they put it. The American cardiologist believes that the ECGs that are done during your medical should be stress ECGs, not resting ECGs. So normally they're done when you're sitting or laying down at rest. But he believes you should be doing these ECGs during exercise Mm -hmm. or physical exertion because you can detect more. This would have been detected during a stress ECG. Well, and that's really the only reason it would cause a, a pilot to have an issue, I would think. Unless you are, like, really unhealthy and you have a heart attack, but... The, right. All the other... Cardi- not all the other... A lot of other cardiologists fought back against this because you can also rule out a lot of pilots who don't necessarily deserve to be ruled out as having severe cardio... Issues. It might just be one of those things where they detect it and they go, you need to get another specialist's opinion before you're allowed to fly again. And all the cardiologists looked at this guy's ECGs and the American cardiologist said, I would have asked him to have a follow-up exam. Yeah. And the other cardiologist said, I'd have passed him. So I'm not... Debate. I, I guess we could ask Brendan this. I don't know what current... Well, ECGs he only, are done. He only has a third class medical, which I don't think requires us. These would all be first class medicals for, okay. and because it's a whole it's different commercial. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's a much higher level. So I don't know what the standards are for this right now. I know that ECGs are still in effect. I don't know if stress ones are implemented at all. I don't know how closely they read them and discern them. I do know we have pilots listening to this. If you know the answer to that, please let us know. Or any FAA doctors? Question mark. Maybe. This is your time to just, shine. Yeah, just email us. <laughs> info at hardlandingspodcast.com. I kind of said that right. And Or message us on Facebook or on Twitter or whatever. It doesn't matter where. We'll figure it. We'll see it. But if you know the answer to that, let us know. Because we don't, we don't know the answer to that. Okay, I'm done trying to pretend I'm a doctor. <laughs> you were using actual research. You're not pretending you were a doctor. That's true. But that was those were terms that I haven't used since I took like AP Biology. So... The second officer, who is the third pilot, or basically performing flight engineer roles, was young, 24 years old, as we had mentioned, but he had 1,400 hours as both pilot one and pilot two. He had over 750 hours on the Trident, and his record showed him to be competent and conscientious, and that's all they ever said about him. And he, they don't know if he was in the room during the argument. argument. It was never determined. Let's move on to the second pilot, the second officer sitting in the right seat. He went to the College of Air Training at Hamble, where a minimum of 225 hours is required before moving to BEA, where you undergo four further training stages to become unsupervised as a co-pilot of a Trident. Ground school is six weeks with a CAA, the equivalent of the FAA, exam at the end. The simulator course is three weeks with about 54 hours in the sim for procedure learning, and during this section of training there are three instances of stalling with a stick shaker and stick pusher scenario, and to pass the course, you had to get out of all of them. The third course is base training for 10 days, at which point you get the type rating. 
The last part is standard operations training as a captain or first pilot for about 30 flights. There are then route checks every 12 months. From my understanding, that's about the extent of his flying experience. He only had 29 hours as P-2 on the Trident, and he was only 22 years old. His reports from Hamble showed that he was, a, he was slow to learn and underconfident, though he succeeded by sheer will and determination. It was written that he will need, quote-unquote, careful watching. One instructor said that stress might cause him difficulties, though he successfully dealt with one real emergency as far as his records showed. I know I've already read a lot of quotes, but this one is kind of emotional on part of the investigator, so I'm going to read it in full. Quote, One is left with the impression of a thoroughly likable, unassuming young man, desperately keen to succeed in his chosen profession, who undoubtedly would have so succeeded had the fates been kinder. It was the worst of bad luck that he should have been in the P2 seat on this occasion. His witnessing of the crew room incident between Captain Key and First Officer Flavel can have done nothing but harm to his self-confidence. It may well have given him an alarming impression of the captain with whom he was about to fly. His natural tendency towards self-effacement would not have encouraged him to question the actions of his captain without serious deliberation, particularly a captain with whom he has never flown before, and his slower-than-average reactions would probably not have been a match for the sudden and alarming events on the flight deck. It would, have, it would be a harsh judge who would criticize Second Officer Keeley for anything he did or failed to do in these circumstances. End quote. It's just... Like I said, and I, this kind of changed afterwards, right? But because we have the 15-hour requirement now and all that stuff. But having a even, – even if they had switched the 24- and 22-year-old, I feel like that would have been a better thing to do than have the 22-year-old who also isn't good with authority. And what I mean by that is he's not going to speak up and say something, and he also doesn't have a lot of flight time, and he – and, 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 right. right? So I'm not saying he's a bad pilot. I'm just saying it wasn't probably a great idea to have him in the first officer position when he has so few hours. Correct. This gets addressed. Yes. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> Investigators questioned whether or not the current training procedure gave these young trainees enough experience before flying passengers, and this question, at least in the U.S., was solved after Colgan Air when it was determined that 1,500 hours are needed before flying for the airlines. The number of hours is the same in the U.K., 1,500, but I'm not sure when this was implemented. However, so this event happened in 1972. In 1974, the ICAO made it standard for air transport pilots to need 1,500 hours total time. But at the time of this crash, as well as Colgan Air, the right seat was not required to have an ATP for the U.S. or an ATPL for the U.K. if you were flying in the right seat. Only the captain was required to have an air transport pilot rating. Yeah, that's not great. That is, in more precise terms, what exactly changed in both this incident, to some extent, and in Colganair. It wasn't that the amount of hours is what changed per se, it's that you needed the ATP rating right. to be a first officer. Well, because... Which means that you need the 1,500 hours. Yes, because let's say, like, for whatever reason, the captain had been incapacitated. Which he might have been. Right, because we don't know. There's no cockpit voice recorder. But if he had been incapacitated and he didn't have enough flight experience to recover that aircraft, then you're out of luck, right? You don't have a pilot that can fly the airplane. So, and especially during an important part of flight, like... Take off mm -hmm. and or 
landing, it's important to have a pilot in both seats that know what they're doing. Yep. So competent. if there's an emergency, they know what to do and they can land the plane safely. Well, it's only the smart thing to do. And I mean, yeah, exactly. It, you know, it, there's been instances where, for example, a handful of years ago, there was a Continental 777 from uh, Newark to Brussels that the captain actually passed away halfway through the flight. But the first officer flew the whole other half of the flight and landed in Brussels because where else were they going to go? They were more than halfway through. So the first officer managed to fly the 777 alone. Granted, the 777 had a lot more advanced technology. Yes, and this is true. And it's also a 777, which you generally have to have a lot more hours to fly. But along those lines, it's still that whole thing of like having somebody who's qualified to fly the airplane in both seats. In both seats. Like I said, if they had switched the 24 and 22-year-old, that probably would have been a different story, right? But because they didn't do that, who knows? So you have a possibly incapacitated to any extent captain in the left seat, a very young, not very super greatly trained second officer in the right seat. We go back to the question for this section, who, how can you tell who lowered the droops? You can't. You can't. Right. It could have been the captain had done it and didn't realize he had done it too early because he's in pain and he's he's distracted. It could be he ordered the second officer to do it and the second officer being in a stress situation, understanding what the captain had just done with the argument, accidentally pulled up the droop lever by accident, you know, because he doesn't have enough experience. It could have been the backseat one. Like, we have no idea. Yeah. And we will never know. That was really long trying to say, I have no idea. Now for an arguably more important question. So we know how the aircraft began stalling. The droops were retracted. But why didn't the crew do anything about it? Well, the first step of stall recovery is recognizing you have a stall. In older and more quote-unquote traditional airplanes, you become aware of a stall when you feel buffeting or a kind of violent vibrating of the wings. With larger and more sophisticated aircraft, this changed to some degree. The trident would ref- would vibrate during the stall with a clean wing, meaning that the flaps and droops were attracted, but it wouldn't with the droops extended. So designers had to implement a system that would specifically tell the crew they were stalling based on the pitch of the aircraft, its wing configuration, its airspeed, all that jazz. A.K.A. the stick shaker and the stick pusher. The stall warning system was the stick shaker, which, as the name suggests, shakes and vibrates the control stick such that the pilot or pilots can't ignore it. And it does so as you're approaching a stall so that you can fix the problem before actually stalling. Anyone who has been listening for a while knows that to recover from a stall, this kind of stall, you need to put the nose down and gain airspeed so you can get lift over the... Yeah, an aerodynamic stall. Yes. Good job. If the crew fails to take this corrective action, the second half of the stall system on board the Trident, as well as many other aircraft, is the stick pusher. Which will push it down so that the airplane doesn't stall. We talked about this system as well in episode 4 with the Colgan Air flight in 2009. The plane will push its own nose down to get out of a stall. So why didn't this system do what it was clearly designed to and get the plane out of the stall? Well, someone pulled the stick up. The AIB had heard rumors that the stall warning and recovering system wasn't the most reliable, and that pilots were more inclined to believe any warning to be false or spurious rather than genuine. In fact, nearly all occasions of reported stick shaker activations were regarded as such by the captain. 
There is a way to disengage the stall warning and recovery system in the cockpit. It is called dumping the recovery system, and the investigators determined that the crew had, in fact, dumped the system. After the third activation of the uh, stick shaker and stick pusher, it was deactivated. Dude. Dude. In today's stick pusher systems, when a stick pusher activates, it also adjusts the elevator trim tab so that when the stick pusher stops pushing, the plane doesn't just resume its previous setting of nose up. Right. That only works with today's systems because they are fly-by-wire or flown by the computer. This system was cable and hydraulic driven. So the stick pusher did not reset the elevator trim tab. So once the stick pusher stopped working... It just went back to what it was doing before. Which was a high nose up position. So then they went back up and then it did it again and then they went back. So the whole reason that the stick pusher activated three separate times is because it would nose over because the hydraulically driven stick pusher would push forward. But then as soon as it it thought it was recovered, it would release, and the airplane would automatically pitch back up to the elevator trim. Unless the pilots, yeah, unless the pilots changed the And so the airplane was in an actually terrible situation, even with the stick pusher, because it was in an oscillating pattern, losing altitude no matter what. So they turned it off. Again, not a great idea. No. I'm sure they just got rid of that completely after this accident, because... I have no idea. I would hope so. That doesn't happen now. You can't just turn off the stick shaker in an airplane anymore. Like, it won't let you do that. (laughs) No, no. So, investigators determined that the aircraft would have recovered if any of the following events took place. These are verbatim or shortened for clarity. The speed was increased by 10 knots in the noise abatement sector. The droop had been selected down at any time. The control column had been held forward of the trim position. Or the stick pusher had been allowed to operate without interference until 200 knots was achieved. Right. So now we're going to talk about something that neither the report nor the air disasters episode talked about, and I forgot to talk about it. So I'm kind of freehanding it here. This particular plane was susceptible to a particular kind of aerodynamic stall. This particular plane had what is called a T-tail, where the elevators are at the top right, 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 of the right. tail. The reason that this is important, in this particular kind of stall, in an aerodynamic stall, it is possible that the wing creates a shadow such that air isn't going over either the wing or the elevators. So Which... then they have zero pitch control. This is called... A deep stall. There is. If you look up this flight on Wikipedia, they have a good diagram of it. I don't know where it came from, but it's a good depiction of the showing the split in airstream caused by the wing and the elevator is in the shadow of this. This is why traditionally T-tails are actually not very common these days in commercial aviation, apart from regional airliners. But in business aviation, they're still very common, actually, T-tails. But yeah, it's they're known to have these problems, and there's one particular version of the Piper Arrow that they put the T-tail on, and it's actually traditionally known to have these deep stall events. And so they're actually known to be more dangerous than the traditional Arrow. This is the same thing. Having this deep stall where you have no pitch authority when you're suddenly in a stall is a terrible thing. Because how do you get out of a stall? You don't. Pretty much. Well, because you have no elevator control. Yeah, so yeah, you have tradi- to hope the airplane nose is over. Traditionally, in a stall, you push the nose down. Well, if you have no elevator control, you can't push the nose down. 
The best thing I could think of doing is trying to turn the aircraft to try to get, like, air over the elevators so that you can do that. But at that point, you might be too late. Well, and they were so close to the ground. And yeah. you could induce a uh, stall spin. You don't want yep. to do that yeah. either. So it's it's basically like, eh. Hopefully you have the hopefully, altitude. Hopefully you have the training. So that being said, of not having enough altitude, this is not the first time this has happened on the Trident. Nope. There were two separate occasions where the plane entered a deep stall, given that it has the inclination to do so with the T-tail. But both of these previous instances had enough altitude to recover. Okay, good. This tragically did not, as yeah. they were just taking off. Yeah. But that's how common kind of a problem this was, too, with the droops, was that this Yikes. had happened already. Yeah. We're going to take a break now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And we're back. We back. Okay, I'm done being a doctor and I'm... You weren't being a doctor. It's fine. So there are no findings. No. So I'm going to read the causes verbatim from the report, as per usual, which cover almost everything I've already said. The immediate causes of the accident were these. One, a failure by Captain Key to achieve and maintain adequate speed after noise abatement procedures. Two, retraction of the droops at some 60 knots below the proper speed, causing the aircraft to enter the stall regime and the stick shaker and pusher to operate. Three, failure by the crew to monitor the speed errors and to observe the movement of the droop lever. Four, failure of the crew to diagnose the reason for the stick pusher operation and the concomitant warnings. And five, the dumping by the crew of the stall recovery system. The underlying causes were these. One, the abnormal heart condition of Captain Key leading to lack of concentration and impaired judgment sufficient to account for his toleration of the speed errors and to his retraction of or order to retract the droops in mistake for the flaps. Two, some distraction, the nature of which was uncertain, possibly due to the presence of Captain Collins as a passenger on the flight deck, which caused second officer Tice Hurst's attention to wander from his monitoring duties. All of that is basically their probable cause. And it's everything we already talked about, but there's so many levels to what actually happened here. Yeah, because they don't actually know without a cockpit voice recorder. And that's the biggest thing. Can you guess what a recommendation is? <laughs> we'll, voice recorder. We'll get there in just a second, but that was like number one. <laughs> and two, three, four, five, and a bajillion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically. So it is interesting, actually, because they did have... A set of recommendations, but they kind of, they wrote this out in first person at the beginning, which I thought was really interesting. I know. So it says, we recognize and applaud the fact that the parties (laughs) and particularly BEA have already taken steps to implement in advance much of what follows. As they should. Yes, that's great. But really, we just need a verbatim what happened. What are you recommending? Yes. So. And what happened? Here's the recommendations. And we'll talk a little bit about what has changed and what hasn't changed as we go through these. One. The dangers inherent in premature retraction of the leading edge droops or slats demonstrably so great that a speed-operated bulk to prevent such retraction is required, and we so recommend. 
All of that written out to say, they're recommending that there actually be a speed trap for the droops and the slats to prevent them from being retracted versus tied to the flaps. This, in Going most along case, the lines of safety actions, now when you retract flaps and slats, isn't there a configuration warning? Yes, there is a configuration warning, and in most airplanes, because they're all digital... You they have say indications. You can't take off. Yeah, well, and you have indications on the. And like we said, this is all one lever now, anyways, but you have indications on your actual speed tape. We call it the speed tape, but that's basically your, your speedometer, for lack of a better term, that actually indicate exactly when, based on the weight of your airplane and speeds and all these things, and the configurations that you chose for takeoff, when you're supposed to retract each level of flaps and slats along the way. So these days, it's really clearly spelled out right in front of you if you're paying attention. So it's a much easier thing concise. to handle. It's much like, more concise. Yes. Yoo-hoo! Yeah. You're, in a, you're in a problem. Yeah, so it's a lot... <laughs> <Big> summer blowout. <laughs> yeah. So it's a lot harder to do this the wrong way. But basically, for this airplane, I, I don't know if they absolutely implemented this, but it was definitely a really good recommendation to tie it more to speed than to flap settings. So I think it's... Obviously, much easier to have implemented this in today's system because everything is done via computer and fly-by-wire and yes. all that stuff. When I mentioned the the system that was implemented previously to prevent the droops from being retracted if the flaps were extended past 7 degrees, it was a physical stop I was going to say, it's lever. probably mechanical. Yeah. So, implementing something that on this plane that is tied to the, for lack of a better word, speedometer. Yeah. As an engineer, I'm like, these are all analog systems. Yes. Uh, How? It would be tough, but arguably that would be a groundable offense in my eyes. I mean, the fact that this happens over and over and now it's killing people. Oh yeah. Oh no, this isn't happening anymore. Engineer it anyway. (laughs) Because it's gotta happen. Figure it out, Christy. It's gotta happen. (laughs) They don't want to figure it out. Figure it out. They don't have to. (laughs) (laughs) It's not your problem. It's not my job. And in any case, this has changed. <laughs> so. God. I feel so called out. <laughs> no, but it's true. It's true. I, I get what you're saying, and absolutely, I agree. This would be a pain. If, but... any, if anyone knows how that would have worked, can, can you email me? I want to know, <laughs> but I also don't want to be judged by Miranda, who's like glaring at me out of the corner of my eye. There's probably information somewhere about how they changed this, but. All right. But digging through engineering documents on the internet oh, I know. is terrible. Believe me, I know. All right, number two. Number two has sections. Oh, good. We recommend that specific instructions and training should in future be given to pilots on the following subjects. A, the causes and results of a change of configuration stall. So, again, this is their term, change of configuration stall. But one of the points is like recognizing that and doing something about it. And what that looks like, having that kind of training in advance. So this goes along with that, like having experience and hours and things is yes. understanding when that happens, exactly what that feels like and having that ingrained a thousand times before you ever touch yeah. that airplane. B, circumstances in which the stick pusher may operate almost simultaneously with the stick shaker when things are bad, when the airplane when really bad, is, bad, 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 bad. when the airplane really is stalling. So I mentioned earlier that the stick shaker activates before the stall. Right. But if this onset of stall is instantaneous, then the stick shaker and stick pusher will happen at the same time because the stick pusher is acting to get you out of the stall that's already happening. Right. 
And this happened in this case because of the droop retraction. So they were suddenly well below stall speed for the configuration, so the airplane all of a sudden did both, activated the stick shaker and put the stick pusher forward. So it was that instantaneous for both. But in a normal situation where the airplane is just losing speed and the configuration doesn't change, it would activate the stick shaker first to tell you, hey, you're in a dangerous situation. And then the stick pusher if you didn't do anything about it. And C, the difference in design concept between the stick shaker and the stick pusher mechanisms. This one's a little vague, but... It's understanding I guess it's, that stick shaker is like, hey, you're going to stall. And stick pusher is like, oh, you're not doing anything about it, so I'm going to fix it. Right, and kind of understanding because I think when they would hear the stick shaker, because there were so many erroneous instances of the stick shaker occurring, that they would just turn it off, that they didn't really, it didn't really occur to them that the stick pusher was also activated, and that this was a separate system and it actually was trying to save the airplane versus an erroneous thing happening. So that's kind of what they're talking about here is understanding that the second system activated because of a real issue and Problem. not a, something yeah. erroneous. I have a question. Yep. Is there anything that tells you, other than the stick shaker, that the stick pusher is activated or if it's your companion pilot pushing on the stick? There probably isn't anything in particular, no. And even these days, there's probably not. But these days... I mean, crew gonna, resource management. Yeah, crew resource management for one, but also, I mean, it's just, it's blaringly obvious. So the stick shaker obviously makes a lot of noise, even back then, and I'm sure that there was alarms and stuff, but these days, the airplane will also say, stall, 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 in your <laughs> ear, so loud, you cannot ignore that. Okay. Simultaneous with the tick, 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 of the stick shaker freaking shaking the whole cockpit. Does so, it shake the whole cockpit? It pretty much does. If you've ever Probably felt- on a small plane. No, no, actually. Having done this in a triple seven simulator, it's violent. Oh. It is so. <laughs> if you grab that stick, I mean, it's literally. <laughs> it's, it's so bad. <laughs> it's violent. It really shakes everything. I mean, it it's there to get your freaking attention. So, so. I'll go rounding back to this. You stalled a triple seven. Yeah, I got I got to put the triple seven through its paces several times with the triple seven simulators. It's a, it's a lot of fun, but yes. I have. You stalled? Intentionally? Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> like. Yeah. To see what that was like. Yeah. You just want to feel what it, what it feels yeah, like. That was many, 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 I don't many know if ago. I want to feel a stick shaker now. Well, in, in a simulated environment, it's like, eh, whatever. It's cool. Number three. We recommend that the carrying of cockpit voice recorders should, as soon as practical, be made a mandatory requirement on all civil passenger carrying aircraft of more than 27,000 kilograms. So. This happened. Yes. All, all. There are exceptions. Airplanes. Yeah, there are exceptions. Commercial airplanes. But yes. There are exceptions with seat, certain seat capacities. If there's not enough seats on board, you do not require to have one. Currently, helicopters are not required to have one. That, That's probably going to that change. Yeah. The NTSB yeah. is yelling their heads off about it. Yep. So hopefully the FAA listens and therefore the rest of the world, question mark. Yeah. So this is obviously been changed and is... An ongoing contentious debate. Yes, but is a, a highly usable tool. Obviously. And well, would have been We unbe- talk about it yeah. every episode. Would have been unbelievably helpful in this. Because they would have known who was in charge of the levers and who retracted the, the droops. Yeah. Well, and actually, there's also this note at the beginning of the report that states that they tried their best to line up the flight data recorder with the air traffic controller recordings, but they couldn't do it 
Exactly. They said there was a possible five second gap, up to five second gap. That's between, a long time. Which is a long time, and it, t- it could tell them more specifically when it stalled and things like that. So that five second gap, yeah, it could be pretty big. And the reason they couldn't tie them all together is because they didn't have the cockpit voice recorder. So they couldn't line up one with the other. So they only tried their best and did what they could. Okay. Well, in the Air Disasters episode, they talked about another recommendation. That has been brought up on many an occasion on this podcast. With the stupid having the cameras. So one of the things that the Air Disasters episode mentioned that was new to me was that some pilots voluntarily allow themselves to be video recorded. It is not regulated as such. Mm -hmm. And it goes more into detail how they're not necessarily wanting the entire cockpit to be video recorded. Not even, like, their heads of the crew, but literally zooming in on just the instruments and the control sticks. I would say, with the whole video recording thing, I think, not to say it's a bad idea. I think it's a really good idea. I think it's a great idea. The problem is privacy things. So, if they were going to use it in aircraft, like, let's say they use it from all aircraft, new aircraft now going forward, right? It makes sense, but you can't make those recordings, like, seeable for the public. And they don't. So, already today with cockpit voice recorders, they rarely, if ever, release cockpit voice recorders. The most that they will do is transcripts, and that is for investigation purposes. If you ever wanted to hear why they don't release them, there's a very violent one for Western Airlines, the DC-10. That we covered, yeah. Yeah, that crashed in Mexico City. You can hear that one, and it is awful. They're screaming, and... it's They're almost never, ever released. For that exact There's reason. one for Alaska 261, mm-hmm. where you pretty much can tell the point where they know they're going to die. And it's horrible and horrifying. And along these lines, though, I really don't see any relevance to having this. Only because with the modern flight data recorders and everything, that data can literally be translated into having that full cockpit basically displayed in front of them without ever having to actually have it video recorded. They can see everything that was happening on the cockpit displays. So the only reason... In this particular accident incident, that I would see this as relevant... Is to figure out who moved moved the lever. lever, Because that could have been nonverbal. Right. It would just help them with figuring out who they needed to train more. So Ultimately, though, they needed to do more training, period. Yes. But if, say, for example, the captain hadn't commanded it, say the captain was incapacitated, did which of the second officers did it? Did the captain do it without saying that he did it? There is so much that happens in the cockpit that is done by gesture or is not verbal that in that regard, it would be helpful to have a cockpit image recorder. Yeah. Sure. That being said, it still hasn't been implemented. It's not implemented, obviously. It is still a topic of debate. It was on the NTSB's most wanted list, I believe, for 2021. Yeah. If I recall. Number four. We suggest that the attention of pilots should be drawn to the possibility and dangers of subtle as well as obvious pilot incapacitation. This is obviously talking about the captain and his medical problems, which they'll bring up again in a little bit. But they want to make sure that it's a lot more clear, the signs to look for. 
So in the Andrew Zasters episode specifically, they depicted like the captain tugging at his collar like he's uncomfortable or like coughing or things like that, like showing that he has indigestion, like pounding right. on his chest. And you his... should, as a flight crew member, be able to recognize that both in yourself as well as others. Well, and his like his short responses and things like that and his disconnection, which first of all is just bad crew just management anyways, which didn't exist yet. But also it's just a sign that something was really wrong with the captain. And though, especially his calls, I mean, the first time I watched that scene, I didn't catch it. Yeah. At all. Like, it's so subtle. Right. And being able to recognize that, like, short calls like that, that don't meet standards, not because they don't meet standards, but because they're so short, are indicators of a problem. Right. Well, and not only that, now we have serum, right? So we have... Probably the captain would have not have been the person flying and doing radio radio calls and moving the levers and all of that, right? You'd have the first officer doing all the monitoring duties and the captain flying the aircraft. And then flight, I mean, they we don't have flight engineers anymore, but flight engineers were basically mo- more monitoring people, yeah. right? So it, it it's a different dynamic now than it was back then. So we yes. don't know. And again, we don't know what it was like on this aircraft because we don't have a CVR, right? So we don't know if the captain was trying to do everything because yeah. captains did that sometimes back then. And that's just dumb and stupid because you have two other people in the cockpit helping you. This, <laughs> right. this recommendation is kind of a precursor to crew, crew resource management. because In its, it's own way, yes. It's yeah. recognizing these signs in your fellow crew members. Right. And and saying something. Yep. So along those lines, number five, we recommend that young trainee pilots should be given more experience than at present on the flight deck of the aircraft before being permitted to operate as P2 on passenger carrying flights. The extent of that extra experience should be the subject of discussion between the airline and CAA. It should be enough to give the trainee the opportunity of seeing a variety of crews flying operational sectors before he himself acts as P2. They themselves, just saying. Yes. Um, so as I mentioned, the ICAO made a fairly immediate change after this report came out to say that to get your air transport pilot rating or license, depending on where you are in the world, you must have 1,500 hours. Right. What didn't change, at least in the U.S. for a long time, was whether or not you were required to have that rating to fly commercially. Right, as a first officer or what have you. Because at the time of the Colgan Air crash, which was in 2009, only the captain was required to have an ATP rating. The first officer was not. So, and to be fair, I think the reason why they limited this for so long is because for a flight engineer, it's not practical to ask them to have 1,500 hours prior to coming into the cockpit because their job is so specific and different and involves no actual flight systems. Right. So for for a flight engineer, which is why you make classifications, which they did do, where a flight engineer only does that job. Right. They don't flip, right? You, you stick right. to that job. And that's the biggest problem is that sometimes there was the likelihood that that could be the case, where they did flip a flight engineer and a first officer. And so having those requirements was difficult. But I think in 2009, by that point, it was like, okay, this isn't really a problem anymore. We should just have this requirement by now. Well, they should have even just implemented it then, that first officers, whoever is in charge of controls of the plane, should have their ATP. Right. I agree. That obviously has changed. I just think it was a little late. Late? (laughs) Yeah. And so along those lines, you know, they're saying just that there wasn't enough experience from these young people in the right seat. 
And that's just true. That's true. Absolutely true. Six, we recommend that should the, quote, stress test, end quote, electrocardiogram in future become significantly more reliable, it should be substituted for the present resting ECG. We don't know because none of us are I was looking at this a little bit. So here's what it reads for the first class medical currently. This is in FAR 67.111 for cardiovascular for the the first class medical. It says that a person applying for a first class medical certification must demonstrate an absence of myocardial infarction and other clinically significant abnormality on electrocardiographic examination, one, at the first application after reaching the 35th birthday, and two, on an annual basis after reaching the 40th birthday. C, an electrocardiogram will satisfy a requirement of paragraph B of the section if it is dated no earlier than 60 days before the date of the application. It is to accompany and was performed and transmitted according to acceptable standards and techniques. They don't specify... If it's stressed or not. If it's stressed or not. They just say acceptable standards and techniques. So this is where we also say our pilot friends who are commercial pilots or have their ATP, please let us know because we don't know. If you're over the age of 35, because obviously you won't have it till you're 35, but... Right. Because normally you won't have a a heart attack till around that time, but... Yeah. Here are some conditions that will disqualify you from being a pilot. I apologize in advance for these extreme medical terms that I may or may not mispronounce. Diabetes mellitus requiring hypoglycemic medication. Angina pectoris. Coronary heart disease that has been treated or, if untreated, that has been symptomatic or clinically significant. Myocardial infarction. Cardiac valve replacement. Permanent cardiac pacemaker. Heart replacement. Yeah, my brother can never be a pilot. That's okay, he won't. Tragic. He I doesn't don't want, want to be. be, so it's fine. <laughs> Psychosis. Thank you. Yeah. I hope so. Bipolar disorder. Makes sense. Personality disorder that is severe enough to have repeatedly manifested itself by overt acts. Substance dependence. Substance abuse. Epilepsy. Duh. Yeah, you don't need to have a seizure in the middle of a flight. Yeah. Disturbance of consciousness and without satisfactory explanation of cause. And transient loss of control of nervous system functions without satisfactory explanation of cause. So Having a stroke. Or Tourette's. Tourette's. Yeah. Which I've been watching a lot of Tourette's TikToks lately. Some of them Interesting. are hilarious. I love the girl that, that bakes with Tourette's. <laughs> <laughs> if yeah. you've never seen that, you should look that up. It's really funny. So there. Those are some of the conditions. Not all of them. So there are probably others. I probably should not fly with my anxiety and panic disorder. Probably. So I don't know if they stress test for the e- the ECG or not anymore. But anyways, the qualification is over 35, at least in the U.S. That you have to have medical. it. Yep. So Brendan would not have had to get it, even if he did his first class. Right. Seven. We question the desirability of allowing the P4 seat to be occupied during critical stages of flight by anyone except a person having a flight function to perform or under training. So this absolutely has not changed. No, hell no. (laughs) There are still deadheading crew, but there are regulations for having them in the cockpit. They have to be... In that they have to be a member, they have to be an employee, they have to be a certain qualification, and they have to be quiet. They cannot interfere with any sort of flight functions below 10,000 feet at any point in time. Even in an emergency to some extent. If they actually have something to contribute, like, not that he was deadheading in the cockpit, but 
Dennis Fitch on yep. UA-232, he had something to contribute to the emergency and right. saved a lot of lives. Correct. But on a, actually a lot of the flights that we've covered that have a deadheading crew member in the cockpit... They're hardly even mentioned, usually. They're hardly ever mentioned, and they're never on the CER because right. they fulfilled the requirement to shut up. Yeah, because they're not flying the airplane. They don't have any right to and they really do anything. In this instance, they couldn't determine if Captain Collins had been a distraction to the quote-unquote flight engineer. Right. They don't know. Number eight. We suggest that pilots folding armrests on the trident should always be kept in the stowed position during takeoff, initial climb, approach, and landing. So this one was really interesting because they don't really talk about this anywhere else. No. But apparently they're claiming that that armrest could somehow be a hindrance to flying. Oh, okay. The trident, specifically. So I don't know if they made that a requirement. But in most airplanes, the armrests are not a problem. They are allowed to have them. Oh, okay. So, (laughs) (laughs) moving on. Yep, that was a weird one. Number nine, we suggest that BEA should consider whether their air safety branch could not be made more effective by giving the air safety officer greater authority to direct investigation of potentially dangerous incidents, i.e. the droop lever being moved on several occasions. There are at present, it seems to us, too many different organizations concerned in this vital matter, with the result that responsibility enthusiasm may be diluted. So again, with the first person thing, where they did that again, and I think it's wrongly, wrongly placed, because it becomes too opinionated. But yeah, their point is valid that if there's too many hands in the pot for air safety at BEA, they have too many people saying, hey, do things this way, do things that way, do things this way, from all these different organizations and different people... How the heck are they supposed to decide what's actually safe and what's not? And if their air safety officer doesn't have the authority to say, no, this is how things are at this airline, then what? There was uh, an episode we covered, and I can't remember if it was a Miranda Soda or if it was an actual episode, but not saying that Miranda Soda are actual episodes, but stuff that's like everyone can hear. There was an incident, I believe in China, where they like could not get everyone to agree. And like everything was a hierarchy, right? So it had to go up the ladder first before they could agree mm-hmm. on it. I don't remember what it was. I think it was, was in that, China. It might have been Taiwan. Was that the melted plane? I don't remember. I don't know. Anyway, it's a problem when you have too many people trying to add in their two cents all at the same time. That's why there is the organization set up the way it is. And the last one, number 10. We suggest that CAA should encourage closer cooperation between their operational and airworthiness branches. So it's kind of interesting because they're they're talking more about a deeper level of how airlines work and the CAA's involvement in that at the time. And it how... makes it sound like the CAA wasn't operating as one cohesive unit. Right. They're kind of, they each have their own say, it seems like, in certain things. The airworthiness and the operational, which it seems like to me those things should be two very, very closely related And, and maybe things. they were, and that's why they're like, um, why aren't they? Question mark. And so you have these operational sections that are saying, don't fly the airplane under these circumstances. It's just not good operational you know, operations. But that would mean that it's not airworthy. Right. And then you have the airworthiness division that could be saying, ah, the airplane's not airworthy if you don't qualify these things. How are they separate? I don't know. So that just seems weird to me. It's like, what, what, how was this functioning before? Because obviously it wasn't. So this accident investigation board 
had some things to say about the way the CAA was operating. Sound familiar with the NTSB and the FAA? Uh, yep. So, all that said. Oh, I understand how they're separate. It's like the documentation and crap is operations. Sure. And establishing procedures and such, whereas airworthiness is the plane itself. Sure. So, I understand how they're separate. They're still separate, but they work more together. Sure. So, speculation how this could have been part of it, because they didn't really talk about it in the report. Mm -hmm. It's that determination of actually implementing procedures with the droop lever... Yeah. And actually determining with various physical hindrances based on airspeed, all of that tied in, that should be two separate departments of the CAA because it's the airworthiness side as well as the procedure side. Sure. Yeah. That makes sense. Maybe they weren't cooperating in that regard. That is full speculation. Don't look at me. Yep. But that, (laughs) that, yep. You can't look at me anyway. It's fine. So, in any case, that's, that's that. That's all the recommendations they had, too. So, this was a big one. It was a big one. It was a good one, though, to talk about. Yes. Yeah, I, I felt good about that one. We yes. we could kind of talk about everything. We, we, we talk about CVRs. We talk about crew resource management. We talk about, you know, making sure everybody is uh, can fly the plane <laughs> that's in the seats to fly the plane. Yeah. Don't exactly. have a heart condition that's unaddressed. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you didn't know you had it, yes. there's nothing you can do. But if they never caught it, also, I, how are I you know, supposed know, to know? But yes, just make sure you you like tell the FAA or whoever you're supposed to that you are like, hey, I have problems. <laughs> yeah. All right, friendos, that was BEA flight five forty eight. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. Remember to check out the Patreon. Thank you to all our patrons. You guys are amazing and awesome, and help us keep going because. We need help. <laughs> so thank you for that. So thanks. So much. Make sure you put in your listener episode stories. Again, it doesn't have to be a story in the theme. It can just be a story. We, again, don't have stories currently as we are recording this for August. So we might have to move it to September. Unless y'all flood our inbox. Yeah, because we, we got nothing, friendos. And flood away. Please. Open the floodgates. <laughs> Oh, this comes out on the last day of the month. Yeah, so if we don't have anything by this point, you you, you out of luck. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what else to say to that. Thank you all. Make sure you take a, a checkity check on the website. It always makes me happy when I see people have visited the website, because I'm the one in charge of the website, so. Miranda, like, goes through the analytics for the website like no one's business. Like, every yeah. day. <laughs> yeah. So, True. if you've been on the website... I've seen you. I've seen your IP address, unless you change your IP address, and then I don't see where you're from. But I can't see names, so it's fine. Thank you so much for listening, and have a safe and healthy week, and we will catch you all next week. Keep your speed up! Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast, and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.